Welcome to the One in Five of Us Changing the Mental Health Landscape podcast. We are working to stop the stigma and start the conversation about mental health. One in five people will experience a mental health condition, but it takes on average eight to 10 years for someone to seek treatment. Hi, I'm Nancy Eigel-Miller, the founder and executive director of One in Five, and I'm thrilled to host this podcast to help educate our community around mental health and wellness and to empower you to start the conversation. And I'm Kayla Wood, the social media specialist at One in Five. Together, we can stop the stigma and start the conversation. You belong here. We belong together. Today, we are talking with Allison Savage, LPCC and Senior Specialist in Program Management at Mayerson Center for Safe and Healthy Families, Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Allison, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And before we get started, we like to kind of ask everybody this. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about um, what you do and um, just what your title is? I work with, within the Mayerson Center, back in 2013, they started a collective impact initiative called Joining Forces for Children. And basically what collective impact is, is it's really an intentional way of working together to share information um, for the purpose of solving a complex problem. And in our cases, we work in order to um, prevent and mitigate the impact of adverse childhood experiences. Um, We work together and within the collective impact approach, there are backbone staff that really help to forward the work to keep people on track. And so there's a lot of different agencies that are coming to the table for a common goal. um, And we wanna make the backbone staff really make sure that those common goals are um, staying on track and accountability and that sort of thing. So I'm part of the Backbone staff, and I work really closely with um, our school age channel, and which, you know, the Collective Impact Initiative, we're working within different sectors, such as early childhood, um, school age kids, as well as healthcare, and then we also have our community connections, which is really meant to bring together various people across the community who may not fit into one of those other three categories. So within those four sectors, I work most closely with the school age children um, initiative. And so within that, I provide a lot of training and consultation um, to schools as well as other agencies out in the community around trauma-informed care and the approach and implementing um, those components. And, you know, along with other projects that we're working on within the community, but my major function is to provide training and um, consultation. And um, we also always love to ask this question, what what led you to this line of work? Mm. That's a really great question. So, you know, I, I started out in the field as a therapist. You know, I was a case manager and I was a therapist for a long time specializing in trauma treatment and especially trauma treatment of kids and adolescents um, for over 15 years. And so what led me to the work that I'm currently doing is knowing and seeing day in and day out and working individually um, with families 
and seeing how so many things outside of their control were impacting their ability to heal. And so I love joining forces for children because it really works at that system-wide level and at that advocacy level in order to help create change. And like Dr. Shapiro was saying, to look at those things that are in the soil with that pair of aces tree that can really have a long, um, longer term impact. You know, there's only so much that we can do at an individual level and one-on-one with families and with kids, especially in treatment. Um, so I feel like this is the, the next level <laughs> in my career, if you will, because I wanted to work more on um, yeah. at the systems level to create change. Will you talk a little bit, you've talked about the trauma-informed care and how that's proven to help build resiliency and foster healing in youth. Can you talk a little bit more about um, specifics about what some of those interventions look like? Yeah, so it's a great question. And trauma-informed care, first of all, is really more than just looking at knowing which kids have experienced trauma and which kids have not. You know, the trauma-informed approach is really looking at how can we help folks change their lens to understand more of the impact that trauma can have. You know, trauma-informed care is definitely about not looking specifically at knowing which kids have experienced trauma and which kids have not. It's about knowing and understanding the impact that trauma can have and equipping folks with the skills in order to mitigate the impact when and if trauma does happen. Because if we just look at what kids are currently experiencing, then we're doing them a disservice because we're not preparing them for the future as well. Mm -hmm. And so in order to implement trauma-informed care within a school system, you know, we're looking at it from the, the system's level. And so you have to look at things like what are your policy and policies and procedures, especially around discipline. Um, are they more supportive which and relationship-focused, which is the trauma-informed approach, or are they punitive in nature that involve, you know, cutting students off, getting them out of the school as quickly as possible, which is not the trauma-informed approach? You know, and you really have to look at what um, buy-in from the administration and looking at how do you pair trauma-informed care with already existing initiatives. Because what we have found is that folks are actually engaging in trauma-informed care um, interventions or practices without really even knowing it. So the implementation of social-emotional learning is actually something that is building resilience um, in kids, and that's a very trauma-informed care approach. So we can work specifically with teachers on how to implement that social-emotional learning when they already have so much on their plate. And it seems like one more thing. And so how do you weave it into already existing um, learning that has to happen? Um, And make it really making it a school-wide effort. And also making sure that you're concentrating on your staff and building compassionate staff and what that can look like. So I I help a lot of times with developing self-care practices um, with staff as well. That's that's good. I think it's... um... A lot of times it, it comes down to um, the languaging and understanding that it's not a it's not a huge change in what we need to do. It's shifting the language around in a way that's more compassionate and more um, I don't know, healing for the child. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. And definitely healing for the child, for the family as well. and involves enhanced understanding of the impact of family and being able to engage families um, and the impact that it has on teachers working in high stressful environments and being compassionate with them as right. well. And I think that we're going to see a lot more of that moving forward. I'm sure that um, one of the questions that we're going to ask about the end here is about the COVID and what that, what kind of impact that's had on um, the work that you're doing. Uh, but before we go there, one thing that I just, uh, a lot of times, you know, teachers are in a situation where it's, um, they're, the, the students are escalated or they're angry um, in, in trying to de-escalate that situation. Um, how are, what are some of the techniques that you're being, that are being taught to, to help them in those situations? This is another great question and one that I get asked a lot. <laughs> and so it, uh, but a lot of times when folks are asking me that question of like, how do I deescalate a student? It's, it, what's really behind that question is how do I get that behavior to stop right now? And it's a very challenging thing to get anybody to stop their behavior right now, including adults. You know, if you think about when you get really angry, are you able to turn on a dime and just stop that machine or stop that train from happening? So, so a lot of the interventions to help a child de-escalate actually happen before the crisis ever happens. You know, and so being able to be proactive enough in order to see and look at what your environment is. How are you supporting a safe environment um, for the students? Physically, you know, I, I walked into one classroom that I was doing a consultation with and the teacher actually had her desk behind all of the students and she would often teach at the back of the class um, for the teachers. And that can be very um, unsafe for a lot of kids who are worried about what's going on behind them and that sort of thing. So looking at like what physically, um, what does your environment look like? And then um, also looking at what the teacher's self-care plan is. So being able to take care of yourself in the moment, but being able to be planful about it, because when the moment hits and when you're in that crisis situation, it's probably not the time that you're going to think, oh, I need to take a deep breath. But if you're proactive about it and practicing it during times of um, when it's not so stressful, then it can be more like muscle memory. So looking at your physical environment, looking at what kind of self-care strategies you are for yourself, because a lot of times the way that a child really calms down is through co-regulation um, and being able to be that rock for somebody. Um, so I look at that as well and um, what the teacher can do in order to help co-regulate. So it looks like modeling the behaviors that you want to see. And so if you're trying to prompt a child um, to take a deep breath, taking a deep breath yourself can sometimes help them to know what to do. Um, and then also being proactive in the sense of having a plan for that child, you know, because there are kids who are get a lot a lot more dysregulated more often than others. And so being able to have a proactive plan, but involving the child in doing that. So asking them things like, how do you know when you're dysregulated? How do you know when you're calm? Um, what do adults do that make it worse or better? Um, what are and then also for the adult, what are some of the behaviors that you see when a child is starting to get escalated? Because one way that I think about this crisis situation is picturing a pop bottle. You know, if you think of like the pop bottle that is the plastic 20 ounce with the cap on top, if you shake it up and then you immediately take the top off, like 
you're not going to be able to stop that soda from coming out. You know, really all you can do is just wait until it stops and then you clean up the mess, mess later. But if you're proactive in your approach and you just, you know, after you know the bottle has been shaken up and you twist off the cap just a little bit and you start to hear that and then you can put the cap back on before it ever explodes. And that's what being proactive and having a plan for those kids who get more dysregulated is like. So being able to notice what are those little cues that might tell you that that child is um, getting escalated. So, but if you're at the point where the pop is spewing out of the bottle and there's nothing that you can do in order to stop it, then what you wanna do is really focus on safety. And so one thing that um, is really important for helping a child feel safe is what are your what are you portraying with your physical presence? You know, what is your face actually saying when you're interacting with the child? Are you saying that I want you to get out of my face right now and I want nothing to do with you? Or are you being more supportive and proactive? And what are your hands doing? Are your hands behind your back, which can feel threatening to a child because they don't know what's going on, but really paying attention to physically what are you saying and then um, and then really appealing to their emotions. So being able to validate the emotions that are going on, which can be really hard and might feel um, counterintuitive, validating somebody when they're in the middle of a crisis, especially if they're doing things like cussing you out or um, threatening you or something like that, but you're not validating that action, you're validating um, their anger that they're feeling in the moment. And then later on, you know, as with the, the soda pop analogy, you know, you do, when you're doing that cleanup, time, that's when you process with the child and really use that as a, a learning experience in order to help them to grow um, and to maybe do things a little bit differently next time, as well as um, helping not only the teacher, but the child to see that the behaviors that they had were, are adaptive and more survival-based mm -hmm. um, and might, and are most likely not coming from an intentional place. Mm -hmm. You know, because when a child is escalated, um, you know, a helpful way to think about it is they're, they're, the thinking part of their brain goes offline and they're just acting out of survival. And so the fastest way to get that thinking brain back online is to help them feel mm -hmm. safe. Makes a lot of sense. So one other question that I know um, comes up a lot when we're talking about this kind of training, how exactly are you doing the training? Are you doing it with um, all teachers at the same time? Is it during a PD day? Or is it ongoing training? What does that look like? So it depends on what the school is wanting from us, you know, and, and also knowing the limitations of PD days and hours and all of that. So it, it can look different depending on the school that we're working with and what their needs are. Sometimes it's embedded within a PD day and sometimes it's embedded within a staff meeting. And sometimes I have a core group of people that I'm working with at the school with the intention of them then spreading that information throughout mm -hmm. the school. Um, so, but it's, it, the trainings that we do are all have an education component as well as a skill building and experiential component to them. 
so that we want everybody to walk away with um, something that they can use immediately. I think it's really good for people to understand there's a lot of flexibility. So it's really um, you going into a school and looking at what's going mm-hmm. on there and then creating something that's going to work um, specifically for that environment is, is so important for people to understand. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely very individualized, um, even down to the type of self-care interventions and things that we use. And one thing that I forgot to mention about like the proactive nature is really embedding um, teaching regulation into the day. And sometimes, you know, a lot of schools are doing that by having mindful moments at the beginning or starting your um, class the same way every day or starting with deep breathing or some sort of regulation mm-hmm. exercise. Um, doing those sorts of things, knowing that kids are coming from environments where they might already be escalated at a 10 when they walk in and allowing them that time to decompress before they get the day started can, can really have a powerful impact. Yeah, it's uh, just those, those little tools. Yeah. Uh, we, one in five, we do a lot of mindfulness education out with schools and um, we do a lot of work with teachers and we start off every session doing three deep breaths. And it's amazing to me still today how many times the teachers are like, that's really easy. Like, so much better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it's the simplest thing. And like, I'm, I'm starting to integrate self-care into all of our operations meetings at Mayerson. And all I did this last time was take three minutes and do three different stretches, one minute a piece. And people are like, oh my gosh, that was so powerful. I feel in such a better place. And it was just exactly. three minutes of stretching. So sometimes the simplest thing. Um, so the COVID mm-hmm. crisis has caused a great deal of trauma in all of us. Um, can you just provide some tips for parents to use during this time to help their kids? Yeah, and I will say, uh, I'll give you some tips here in a minute, but we do have, we worked on a project with Cincinnati Public Schools, and they created resilience videos for parents, and so if you wanted to learn more about that, and they demonstrate some of the techniques that we're talking about, and so if you want to learn more, you can see those on the Cincinnati Public YouTube channel. Um, There's also links to it on our Joining Forces Facebook page. Um, so you can join and like us, and then you'll also get updates on all of the information and tips that we're put, putting out as well. There's also a lot of tips on the Cincinnati Children's website. If you just go to the COVID webpage, um, there's a lot there as well. But just in general, how parents can help um, is, first of all, to be able to extend compassion and kindness to yourself as well as your kids. You know, this is a time to be able to show that same compassion and kindness that you would a friend going through a tough situation to yourself and to your own kids. And knowing that some behaviors are gonna come out of nowhere and there might even be some regression. And so being able to validate for kids and being able to validate the emotions that they're going through goes a long way. And being honest, being able to um, be honest with your kids about what you know and what you don't know and making sure if there's something that you don't know to be able to say, let's find this out together and anything that you can do together with them um, will have much more of an impact on their safety um, and help to build trust in you as well. And so validating and then also um, to keep on praising them. And even though they may not be able to get as much done in school as they have been, but finding different ways to specifically praise them for what you see and the good that you're doing 
that they're doing together and spending quality time, you know, really using this time, this slowdown time where we're not rushing and getting into all kinds of different activities and using that as a way to connect and slow down. And during that time of connection, being able to start the conversation. You don't have to wait for them to come to you, but you can be more proactive. And sometimes that conversation can start off with, you know, what do you know about this particular situation? Um, Either COVID or, you know, some of the other things that are going on in our society right now. And being able to start the conversations with those um, will help them to open up. Okay, that's very helpful. I think that um, a lot of times it's those those basic skills of that human compassion um, that need to be present to actually help somebody feel safe and to feel more secure are so important. Yeah. And especially because like times like these with situations like COVID or climate change or something where there is a threat to our survival, but it might not be imminent and it's something that is nebulous and out there can really cause our systems to be on heightened awareness. And so um, that can also bring up past trauma memories, which is why you might see some regression in behaviors and things like that, because all of these things are being remembered. Um, So being able to show compassion definitely helps with kids feeling safer. So Allison, I know you're working on a specific project called the Georgetown Project. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, so it is um, specifically through the Center for Juvenile Justice Reform at Georgetown University, and it's the School Justice Partnership and Diversion Pathways. It's a certificate program, and the wonderful thing about it is that we're bringing together three school districts, um, Cincinnati Public, Princeton, and Northwest, and then also working across um, other sectors. We have legal aid, and we have um, the juvenile justice team and child welfare, um, the Hamilton County ESC. And so we're really working across sectors in order to promote equity and trauma-informed care and enhance crisis plans within school in order to prevent the school-to-prison pipeline, as well as really looking at equity and, um, you know, discipline procedures. What we know is that There are a lot more um, people of color who are being suspended and put out of school and having a lot more discipline incidents. And so this group is really looking at how do we bring more equity within the school system. It's great. It's uh, I mean, especially knowing that like some of the some of the issues that we have going on today in our society, um, I think that focus on understanding the culture and understanding some of the barriers and um, a lot of the history that has happened before. How do we try to overcome some of that to help these kids? Absolutely. Yeah, I think right now it just has shined a spotlight on (laughs) the inequities that still uh, exist. Absolutely. So Allison, thank you for being with us today. This has been very insightful. Um, you've given us a lot of a lot of things to think about, and you've given a lot of good tools for parents. Um, we'll be sure to include some of the resources that you have out on your website um, for parents in our notes section um, at the end. And uh, um, thank you for being with us, and we appreciate all you're doing. Absolutely, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. 
To learn more about this episode, you can check out our show notes and access additional information on our website at 1n5.org. We ask that you please subscribe, rate, write a review, or share this podcast with anyone you think may be interested in hearing more about how we're changing the mental health landscape. Again, I'm Nancy. And I'm Kayla. And we hope you'll join us next time as we talk with Rachel McCoy, a licensed professional clinical counselor and the clinical lead for school-based programs at Cincinnati Children's Medical Hospital. We'll look at how the coronavirus pandemic has impacted students' mental health, and we'll discuss some of the resources available to those who may need help with their mental health during this challenging time. See you then. You belong here. We belong.